Good morning, everyone. I told Peter this morning, so a caveman's call song today, huh? And he said, no, Chris, no. And he corrected me, so put me in my place. But All right, well, um, great to see you all. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here today. Thank you for coming today. And like Ellen said, for, um, I guess, braving, is there marathon traffic out there? Is it harder to get here right now? I thought maybe there might be around the, the uh, river road and stuff, but wasn't sure. So, um, but good to see you all. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John right now, sermon series-wise. Took a break for three weeks, if you weren't here for that, uh, to talk about our church's vision a bit and kind of our story and things like that, So, which is a lot of fun. Uh, those sermons are online, too. If you, if you are a newer individual to our church and want to know more about our story, how we got here, um, I would kind of commend those to you uh, to listen. Or just talk to one of us as well. We'd love to take you out for coffee and to hear your story as well and to connect you further to our church. But we're going to get back into the Gospel of John today. We are in John 12. 12 to 19, if you have a Bible and want to turn there, uh, feel free. But um, remember from a few weeks ago, we kind of started then, but especially today, we are beginning that part of the Gospel of John that constitutes the last week of his earthly ministry and life, but also including his resurrection from the dead. So uh, today we're going to talk over the events that took place on Palm Sunday, five days before his arrest and crucifixion. And the rest of the Gospel of John then, even though we're only halfway through the book, we'll cover what we call Holy Week. And um, so interestingly enough then, we'll, uh, we'll be finishing John right around Easter of 2023. So it's almost kind of like we're starting some kind of prolonged Lenten season here, and it's October, which kind of feels weird, but <clears throat> that's kind of what we're doing. But as we've been saying, uh, there, there's a reason why the last week of Jesus' life gets so much ink in all four gospel accounts. Uh, it, it's, and that is, it's more important than the parts that come before it. Uh, his death, in other words, was not an afterthought to his moral teachings as if the main reason for his coming was to teach us how to live good lives. Oh, and then he was killed for being a good guy. But instead, his teachings and miracles, which were meant to disclose his identity as the Son of God, set the stage for and gave way to the better thing, the culmination of his redemptive work, the reason he came into the world at all, which was to bring light to the darkness by dying on a cross for sinners as a substitute. All right, so if that didn't quite make sense, just hang tight. We'll talk more about that today, but that's a big difference. Uh, What do we emphasize in the Gospels? Why is he here at all? And how does he self-disclose in the Scriptures? And even how do the Gospel authors themselves, in this case the the Apostle John, uh, choose choose to write the story? Um, And like Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, there's a a climax. there's There's a lesser part and a greater part and we're getting to that greater part here now, the, the main reason why he came. And so today then we're going to talk about the triumphal entry, John 12, 12 to 19. Let's read it in full here to begin, and we'll come back and highlight a few kind of big themes as John chooses to highlight them because it's a little bit different from the other three. I'll talk about that. But let's start on verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The, reasons, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All right, so I uh, mentioned it before, but this is what uh, Christians sometimes affectionately call the triumphal entry. Uh, when Jesus enters into the city, Jerusalem, to the shouts and cheers of the people, to the chagrin of the Pharisees and religious rulers who have been trying to kill him for some time now, and to the eventual, eventual head-scratching of all, as none of their expectations are met, really, on either side. And, and that's part of, the point, that part of the point of what John's trying to say here. And so, um, John's account, if, if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version, uh, you might have noticed this as well, just even after a first reading, but um, John's account is kind of stripped down. It doesn't include a lot of the other frills that the others, others do. Um, it's still very rich in theology, though, and I think that it's, even for me this week, just kind of writing a sermon on it, it, um, it kind of makes you look at some of the uh, sort of B-level parts of a passage like this uh, to look at some of the things that don't maybe instantly stand out uh, thematically or subject matter-wise that, that might in, in other accounts. And so I think it's kind of helpful, and I'll help you see a few of these things hopefully today too. Um, but I have three big things today. If you want to follow along and like to kind of look where we're going, it's on that sermon insert in your worship folders. But I think three big things, and some of them are kind of that B-level B -level stuff I was talking about um, that serve uh, an amazing purpose in the narrative here. Um, and some of them are a bit more obvious. We'll get to the obvious ones as well. Jesus riding in the city on a donkey is not this kind of, it sounds really random, but it's actually super important. We'll talk, and I don't want to miss that. We'll talk about that uh, to close in just a bit. But I want to start with this one. The first is our understanding of kind of what's happening here, our understanding of the prophecies. Our understanding really of just, of just Jesus at large is not like a prerequisite uh, in the way we like to think, it, think about it sometimes. I'll talk about this in uh, some nuanced ways here in a minute. But verse 16, to go back to that, says that the disciples did not understand these things at first when it was all happening. When they saw Jesus coming into the city, when they saw him riding on a donkey, when they saw the crowds, um, they, they didn't get it. And John was there. John actually, who wrote this, was one of the, one of the disciples. Um, and he's kind of saying that about himself. Like, I was one of them. We didn't understand what was going on, until he was glorified, which is to say raised from the dead, then the veil came up, and they understood that these things were written about Jesus, that he was a king, that he had to ride in a lowly manner into the city on a donkey, and so forth. But at this point, there is widespread kind of blind, blindedness uh, to, to what's, what's going on. And so before we talk about what they didn't understand, I think it's important just to sit in the fact that they didn't understand, and relatedly, that the most important thing to ever happen in history, which is Jesus' death and resurrection, and we're right in the, the, the doorstep of that, did not come in response to their or our understanding, or our prepared hearts, or our clean lives. Uh, but instead, he came apart from all of that, because his coming into our lives is by grace, it's not conditionalized, uh, as it is every single day of our lives. So in other words, his arrival into our life is true for you as well. It's for them. Uh, it's embodied here. But the greater theology here is that his arrival, Jesus' arrival into the world, his arrival into our hearts is not a reward for our getting it or understanding, but a grace in spite of our misunderstanding and our sin. 
Uh, if you guys have read the Gospels before, you know how misguided and misunderstanding ridden the disciples were. They just don't understand anything. And it's a constant, almost humorous cycle that they have. They're, they eventually do because God is allowing this veil to be pulled up. And, but it's not until after his resurrection that that fully is pulled up. But throughout the narratives, they, they are misunderstanding pretty much wholesale what's going on. And yet, Jesus is still steamrolling through, the, through history and into Jerusalem, into this moment, uh, in order to die on a cross for the sins of the world and, and rise again. I'll come back to some of that in a minute. But in terms of what they misunderstood, uh, we, we see that, that they were there because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's something John includes. It's unique here because Laz, the Lazarus story of him being raised from the dead is not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so kind of a helpful thing here. They're there because that just happened in chapter 11, right before this. And they want to see this guy. Uh, they probably want to see Lazarus too. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, but they want to see Jesus. And they're there to celebrate him and kind of, um, yeah, and celebrate his arrival into, into Jerusalem. Not just the outskirts, but into the actual city where the temple was as well. So in terms of what they misunderstood, Lazarus is there, uh, and that just happened. But the waving of palm branches um, signified victory in battle and was also a nationalistic symbol in some way too. It meant that the Jews were preparing, they were celebrating. They were preparing for deliverance. It was almost like a pre-deliverance parade in a sense. They, they were preparing for deliverance from their political enemies, their physical enemies um, of the day, which were the Romans, um, who were presently occupying their land with a very heavy hand, lots of oppression happening. Um, and so that's what they're celebrating. They're, you know, this guy just raised, the, the, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And I don't, you know, it's impossible to get into the minds of people as they're watching this happen and what they're thinking. Um, you know, it could have just been a symbol. I don't know if somebody's there thinking, well, he just did this to Lazarus. Is he going to, like, raise a zombie army up from the dead and march over to Rome? I mean, possibly. Like, if someone did that, they're basically saying he can do anything. He can do anything that he wants. Like, nothing's, nothing's going to stop this king who's going to take back our land. And so there's these kind of hopes and expectations that are there um, as well for the people. That we, we also know this historically. Other parts of the Gospels give a further nod to it. But the idea is um, that there's a physical hope. There's a political hope here. Um, hence the waving of the branches and, and so forth. So a lot of the misunderstanding then, like to go back to verse 16 when it says they didn't understand, a lot of that has to do with um, misunderstanding what their biggest problem was. This has been a big theme in the book. I know we've talked about this. Um, but in, in their mind, again, it was, well, Rome, obviously. That's our biggest problem. Like, I mean, if someone was occupying the United States of America, and it wasn't America anymore, but we were still kind of living here, and someone asked, what's your biggest problem? Well, that would probably, probably be it, you know, or top three, you know, at least. Like, we understand why they're saying this. Um, but it wasn't. That wasn't actually their biggest thing. So when Jesus arrived... He didn't like, like, you know, pet that uh, cat, so to speak, on its back. He sort of just said, no, actually, it's a different thing. Um, John 8, 34 says, all, among other places, Jesus was clear on this. He says, all who sin are a slave to sin. All who commit in a sin or do a wrong thing and sin before God, they're trapped, they're enslaved, they're cuffed by that sin. They're imprisoned by it. And so... Um, it's sort of like a hierarchy of needs that Jesus, when he talks like this way, he flips it on its head. And in terms of how we understand, he flips it on its head. 
And we have to come to terms with that. This is not just for them. This is for us as well. Um, many people from this crowd just a few days from now, will, they're, they're cheering now, but soon they'll be yelling crucify him for similar disillusionment reasons. They're disillusioned. Um, others are there taking it to heart and beginning to believe. Uh, we know that from later in the story, but they're probably a minority. But if there was a, a lesson for us here, I, I think it would be on the danger of when Jesus fails to meet our expectations and we just discard him. Even though he's always there meeting our most important need. He's always there doing that. Uh, and even though, but he might not be meeting all of our best expectations or fullest expectations, we, we might be inclined to, to, to discard him or question him. Like how ridiculous would it be for someone to like, you know, literally be in the act of being rescued or, or saved from drowning, but before the water could be wiped from their eyes or expunged from their lungs, they start questioning the rescuer over his methods. You know, like, why didn't you also bandage up the cut on my arm? You're a terrible rescuer. Or, oh, you're from that political camp. You know, I, I think I'd rather just jump back in the ocean than be saved by someone like you and wait for someone else. Like, that would never really happen, right? We, we would call that foolishness or madness if that were to happen. But, but in the end, Jesus is not like a vending machine. He's not, we can't make him into whatever we want to make him into. He is who he said he is. And his hierarchy, his hierarchy of needs for us is the truth. If our hierarchy of needs is different, it's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. And, and the God of the universe is saying there is an order to what you need and I'm here to, t- to tackle and address the biggest one, which is saving you from your sin and reconciling you with your creator. And so at the end of the day, he is who he said he is. He is the son of the living God who has come to save us from our sins. Everything else isn't necessarily unimportant. It's just secondary at best. So Jesus isn't necessarily like unmindful of Roman occupation. It's just, it's not the biggest thing. And that, that's why it's interesting that Jesus actually uh, starts to heal and talk graciously to the Romans as well. You know, like, these are the occupying evil people, but he's, like, being kind to them. He's healing some of their sick kids. He's acknowledging that they have faith. And this, it's, it's just, like, it's almost impossible for us to fully feel that physically, like, what that would be like. You know, if, if we had an occupying force here in this country and Jesus came not to save us from them, but to actually be kind to them, uh, we might have the same kind of disillusion. We probably would. Like, well, that's kind of why you're here. Like, if Jesus became, like, an American, too. This is maybe a silly analogy. But if he became an American, like, well, like, you became like us. Like, why aren't you helping us kind of do this? And um, it would cause those kind of flips. It cause question what maybe what our biggest needs are. Maybe it isn't uh, the occupiers. Maybe it isn't this physical pain that we're experiencing, but... Um, but something much more severe, much more critical, much more eternal, um, and, uh, and even cosmic. All right, but here's the, so all that is important. But here's where this comes full circle, back to the good news. Jesus didn't turn the donkey around when he saw into the crowd's hearts that they misunderstood. Nor does his redemption come as a, as a product of your and my perfect understanding of the gospel in all of these things. Again, like I said before, it comes in spite of our misunderstanding. In one sense, everyone always approaches God the wrong way. Uh, all Christian, or at least not perfectly, and yet we're saved anyway. And so the lesson here is not 
ultimately, um, don't swat at the hand of God when he's trying to rescue you from your sin, but he's not doing something else in your life. Uh, the, the lesson's not, um, don't confuse uh, your, your own hierarchy of needs and project that onto Jesus. Uh, the, the lesson isn't, don't be faithless or don't have disbelief, although those are important things. The ultimate lesson is, you and I have swatted at the hand of God. We have flipped our hierarchy of needs around. We have lived as though we, there, there are other more important things in our life than what Jesus ultimately has to offer. And we've had faithlessness. We've had disbelief. I mean, any of you, myself included, if we're honest, we've had these things. But the good news is, he still enters the city. You see, he's not conditionally saying, that they, I know this crowd is going to kill me in five days. Like, I'm going I'm to throw the donkey in reverse and back up out of here. Like, he stays committed. You know, in light of the, in light of the disciples' misunderstanding, your and my uh, misunderstanding, he moves into our lives, moves into our city and the sin therein, and rescues us from it and brings light into that darkness. And so the lesson then is believe in that. Uh, repent, receive him, rest, relax, breathe that in. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things I think in Christianity sometimes where it's like we talk about, well, obviously sin is sin, but, you know, it's, it's kind of on us to work on our disbelief and expunge doubts from our brain or something. And it's like, well, is it though? I mean, it's, it's like God is, God is not waiting for you to figure all that out. Uh, faith is not the absence of doubt. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, even though doubts are, you know, hopefully wane and we, and we can address them, it's, it's also uh, important to understand that God saves us by grace, not by our lack of, uh, our lack of full belief. Um, and so like the centurion in Mark 8, you know, uh, one of the greatest prayers, I think, in the whole Bible, I believe, help my disbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Like, we, we, we can pray that because of grace. I believe the gospel, but I have all this unbelief at the same time, and Jesus honors that prayer. Um, if it's by works we're saved, that guy wouldn't be saved. If it's by us we're saved, that guy would be rejected by Jesus. But again, because of these themes, of these motifs of Jesus moving into um, the brokenness, the, the nothing that we have to give to God, we can underscore, highlight, underline, circle that idea of saved by grace, not by works all the more. All right, next theme, daughter of Zion. Let's read from verse 15 again, um, where it says, this is actually John quoting from Zechariah 9.9. Um, I'll say some more about this later too, but he says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. All right, so what I want to do is uh, kind of click on this word Zion for a minute. Um, it, it is a um, often misunderstood, or maybe more than that, more than misunderstood, it's an often um, kind of just untalked about, I think, concept biblically. Uh, but it comes up here explicitly, and so I think it's, it's worth a few minutes. Um, very important word, very important concept to understand biblically. And sometimes that word just gets boiled down to a synonym for the city of Jerusalem. That's part of it, uh, no doubt. But more than that, Zion, this is uh, my definition, but uh, I'll talk about this in a minute. Zion is the prophetic name for God's New Testament mountain. Zion is the prophetic name for God's New Testament mountain. Now, Jerusalem sat on a mount physically, uh, but Zion is the broader spiritual reality behind it, you could say. The Bible talks in these terms a lot. You, a lot of you know this, I know, but if you don't, the Bible takes this good, maybe uh, physical thing, 
and then spiritualizes it later. It sort of says there's this physical event, this, this historical thing or whatever, this saying, and then later in the story, it, it sort of gets put on steroids spiritually and gets talked about in more cosmic terms. Zion then is not just Jerusalem. It is originally, but when the prophets start speaking in the Old Testament, they talk about it as though that this idea of Zion's on steroids. It's not Jerusalem anymore. It's bigger. It's, it's more cosmic. It's for all nations. It's, there's something else going on here. When Jesus comes then, he kind of brings all this to fruition. Uh, it, it's coming to a head here with Jesus' triumphal entry and his eventual death, which will fully inaugurate the New Testament. Uh, that's a big thing too, to understand. The New Testament begins at Jesus' death, not at his birth. I don't care what that little page right before Matthew 1 says in your Bible. It's, it's, it, that's not where it begins. Uh, Jesus himself says that when I die, when he's establishing communion for the first time, that, that the New Testament's in my blood. A death has to occur. All right, so, so Zion then being the New Testament mountain of God um, is fully kind of being inaugurated right here when Jesus is entering the city just to die in a few days, to be rejected, arrested, tortured, crucified for our sins, all of that. Zion is being established. All right, but like a lot of things in the Bible and in life, um, meaning comes not just from definitions, but from contrast. In other words, something is what it isn't. Like we might, be defi- we might define light by not being darkness, all right? Something like that. Uh, we do it all the time. Uh, if you guys have ever played a board, the board game Code Names, you ever heard of this board game? Some of you, um, it's a great board game, but you have a partner and you try to like give a one-word thing to someone to guess the, code, the, the name, right? Something like that. Password, it's not another name. Even apples to apples, you do this sometimes, which is different, I know. Uh, but the, where, where you sometimes, the clue becomes the opposite of it because there might be such a notable opposite of the thing you want your partner to guess that you say the opposite versus a synonym. You ever done that? I don't know if it's a good strategy or not, but, I, but I've played it that way before, and sometimes you say the opposite, and then, then your partner's thinking, oh, it's, there's such a close association with that opposite that you get the idea. And I think it's the same here as well. I think certainly when you read the Bible, Zion is not just defined, it's not just a theme, but it is, it's defined further in contrast to what its opposite is. And the Bible clearly has another mountain uh, in it, and clearly has a contrast and in in an opposite to it, and that other mountain is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was where Moses received the law from God and gave it to Israel. Uh, the, the idea being that Mount Sinai was the Old Testament mountain of God, but Zion is a different mountain altogether, and it is the New Testament mountain of God. The Bible then being a tale of two mountains, uh, as you can see here. Uh, it, essentially, the two mountains then helping to tell a story that move us from the one to the other, from darkness to light and from law to grace. Uh, Hebrews 12 explicitly gets at this. It's the best place to go in all the Bible on it, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, even though there's many other places you could, just want to go right to the, the peak, so to speak, um, and help you see this. This is a New Testament letter, um, but the author says, For you, Christian, have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order, the command that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, Sinai, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. You've actually come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All right, tons going on here. Let me just say this for today. The message is pretty simple, and that is we as Christians in no way whatsoever worship at Mount Sinai. We as Christians in no way whatsoever have figuratively or spiritually come to the base of that mountain. That that is to say that we don't approach God by way of the law or his commandments, nor do we approach or worship by the law, nor, nor, do we, nor does our day-to-day spirituality find ultimate um, uh, uh, guidance uh, by, by the law, which had a do this and then you will live a kind of uh, aspect to it, to quote Leviticus 18. Sinai, the author of Hebrews says, was not, not a good place. Uh, there was darkness, there was gloom, there was fire, there was death. Um, It's the place where people did not want to hear from God. They covered their ears. They couldn't bear the commands. They they covered up their ears and didn't want to hear him speak anymore. Um, If anyone touched it, including animals, they would instantly die, and many did. Thousands died, if you remember that story. Um, But there was fear. And and I think it's implied in how Zion's talked about there is no ability to come to God through Sinai. There's no ability to come to Jesus and and, and have reconciliation. Um, But here's the thing. When the Bible talks about Jesus coming, the good news here is not that Jesus came to make Sinai less scary. Uh, The the Mount of the Law remains a terrifying place theologically, right? Or else this would not be spoken of to Christians in the first century. Like, it's not like Sinai changes. It remains a terrifying place theologically and spiritually to live. Uh, Instead, the New Testament Uh, The idea is that Jesus establishes an entirely new mountain, an entirely new way of thinking and living. And and so instead, we have come to the mountain of the gospel, the mount of God's redeeming love, as the song goes. Uh, A a mountain that says nothing of the law, but only of Jesus' sprinkled blood, as you see here uh, in the second uh, part of it. It's a blood that, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you know that story in Genesis 4, Abel's blood spoke a word of condemnation like the law did, a, a word of tit-for-tat spirituality or revenge. Uh, but that's not the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus spoke acquittal. It spoke freedom. It spoke forgiveness. It's altogether different. There's no way whatsoever to blend these. You cannot blend, you cannot blend Sinai and Zion. You cannot blend law and grace. It's impossible. They're, they're completely on different spectrums. And so, so Jesus then, who never once mentions Sinai in his ministry, here he fulfills the simple words, daughter of Zion. When, when he's coming into the city, it's God saying, your king is here, and he's speaking to people as though they're children of this newfound reality, this new way, this new mountain. Daughter of Zion. He is a prophetic harbinger of this new reality. Moses is giving way to Jesus Sinai to Zion, slave to daughter, old to new, death to life, untouchability to touchability, revenge to forgiveness, the list goes on. Um, And so the triumphal entry then 
What it's saying is the sprinkled blood of Jesus that's about to happen that mediates a new testament is almost here. The sprinkled blood that mediates a new covenant is almost here. And it comes with the light, the dancing, the happiness, the freedom, the fearlessness of God's unconditional love. Not the darkness of the command which leads to disobedience and death. All right, third. Lowliness and grace. This, this third uh, piece will kind of flush out what we just talked about in, in terms of like how this all happens. We talked about the sprinkled blood, um, but this idea of um, lowliness in Zechariah 9 is the final piece of the puzzle. Let me read all of, um, all of Zechariah 9.9, which is what John is quoting from, as, as said before. All right? Hundreds of years before Jesus, God says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See? Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. The key here, I think, is the, the, the two juxtaposed, maybe seemingly opposite ideas of victorious and lowly. In other words, Jesus isn't riding a war horse here, right? And yet he's arriving as king in a victory parade on a donkey. Um, all of which sends him the right kind of message about what kind of king he would be and what type of battle he would wage. Um, some believe Jesus was a pacifist, but he actually wasn't, at least in the strictest sense of the term. Like, he, um, he actually came to wage the war of all wars. In that sense, Jesus is more pro-war than anybody who's ever lived because it, there's, like, one ultimate war, and he was all about it, uh, like David, his, uh, his forefather, but even more so. But, but, the, but the war wasn't physical. The war was spiritual. He came to slay... Uh, death. He came to slay the devil. He came to slay our distance from God. He came to slay our sin. And the means to that was by him becoming low to the point of death on a cross for our sins. Philippians 2 says, uh, rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you see it there as well. Um, he made himself nothing. This is actually kind of an instance where you start you see a glimmer of that, right? Riding in on, on the city in a donkey is not a, a high horse kind of thing, uh, literally. All right, verse 16 then also says, I'll read this again. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorif- excuse me, glorified, then they, under- then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and here's the key, and had been done to him. So you see that last piece? Written about him, Zechariah 9.9, and done to him. And so there's something more going on here than the surfacey prophetic fulfillment of Jesus riding on a donkey, and that is, like he's being carried away by a donkey here, so later he will be carried away by the Gentiles or by, and, and um, condemned to death by the Jews as well, carried away by his enemies. So he's not just doing something, something's being done to him. He's in the passive. He, he's, um, you know, he's actively wanting this to happen. He's being attacked. He's being accused. He's being carried away. He's being whipped. He's being crucified. That's really important to see here too. And there's a nod to it given by John uh, in terms of the, the sort of the, um, in the, the way the language is that it's definitely, he's in the passive role. Um, something is being done to him. Not against his will because no one takes Jesus' life from him. It's his freely to give. Um, but this is not a lesson on humility 
as much as a cruciform entrance into a city that will turn on him in just a few days' time. And so, just to kind of summarize it this way, I would say that the good news then is that the cross happened to Jesus for us, that we might shout Hosanna from a pure heart and dance at the base of Mount Zion forever. Like, that's, that's the idea. To him, but for us. The, the gospel's not something that's going to happen to you if you don't do such and such. Uh, something happened to the Son of God that you might never have to worry about something happening, bad happening to you again. He, was, he took the brunt. Something happened to him as a gift for us that we might live and dance um, in a Mount Zion fashion. And we already do, we're already doing that. Everything we did this morning was very Mount Zion-like. We just sang about Jesus. We sang about how amazing he is. We're already doing that now in this life, but uh, especially in the life to come. But, it's, I w- but the, the last spin on this is that it's not just about means, though. Um, the lowliness of the donkey, the lowliness of the setting, sort of sets the stage for the lowliness of the cross. That's actually a massive part of it. But it's not just that. To, to spin the diamond one more facet to the left here um, is it's about substitution. In other words, Jesus became lowly to save the lowly like you and me. Uh, Psalm 138.6 says, God regards the lowly. He is a God who looks at and cares for people who are in a low, low spot in every sense of the word. Isn't that awesome? God's like that? This can't be stressed enough that God becomes what he wants to save. God becomes what he wants to save. He didn't come to us high, but he came to us low because we were low and because he came to save us by grace, not to reward us for our own kinds of highness. Uh, As he says elsewhere um, in Mark 2, I I came for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus didn't come for healthy people. But the the twist on that is, well, there actually are no healthy people. But it's it's, to be the same to say, God didn't come for people who are high, but the twist on that is, well, no one's high. Every human being is low in their sins. Every human being is much lower actually than they think. But God became low to save us down there rather than shouted at us from the high and and gave us a plan for coming up. That's not Christianity. Christianity is God is a God of the low, and not just of the low, but he became low. This is unique. And so, see, if this is all true, then, then, so Christianity is quite the odd duck religion because it says, God came to you when you were low, not to teach you how to live a high life and then save you, but to save you when you were low by becoming like that. So, it, so it's good news then for the lowly because it means that salvation is given regardless of what follows. That this is, um, I, I would encourage you guys, this is not something... This is not a concept that orbits around your conversion alone and then somehow the rules change later in life after conversion. The Bible never teaches that. We're always lowly. We're always lowly. We're raised up and exalted with Jesus and that's still coming in the body, praise God, but we are always, he's always with us in this low state. There's never an indication that that kind of idea changes afterwards. So it's good news for us who are low. It's good news for those of us who have a, a, a lowly life, in any sense of the word, hard life, as Christians, 
you know, for, for those of you who are Christian who, you know, if your life has gotten worse after you became a Christian, if sin's even, even more problematic, if, like, I feel like even, like, I'm more under the thumb of it, I can't shake this, if I'm, if I'm more depressed now, more anxious, see, then this is good news. If you don't have this theology in your arsenal, you're going to start to question things. Well, am I a Christian? I mean, are things supposed to be better for the children of God? Are things supposed to be, like, kind of more on the up and up, even in this life? Maybe, but maybe not. You know, this is saying God is the God of the low. He comes down. We never go up. He's always coming down. Even in the end, heaven will come to earth. You will not go up. You will not ascend to heaven. That's not the ultimate ending point for Christians. That's, this is clearly what Revelation teaches. This is orthodox, creedal, basic Christianity 101 stuff. It's easily missed in Western cultures sometimes. It's not us out of the body floating up in our spirits to heaven. It's God comes back down, saves us, raises us up in the body, and he lives here on a new earth. So forever, we will never, ever be able to say on any level whatsoever that it's us who went to him. But it's always and in every way him who came to us. Even in this passage, Zechariah 9.9 predicts it, right? Look, your king comes to what? You! Your king comes to you. That's, what, that's worthy of, of waving our hands and clapping and dancing and whatever we're waving uh, to celebrate uh, the God who came to rescue, rescue us, right? The, the prophecy is not, look, you've come to him. Um, these, these things are crucial to see. They're seemingly benign, but they're actually, they're, they're not. This is, this is the core and so, again, I think that's, that's an appropriate final word uh, to leave for today. Again, because I know some of you are, you might not think you're, you're just not having a lowly spot now, and that's great, praise God. But for those of you who are lowly, and those of you who will be later, um, if life gets worse, you know, if, it doesn't have to be this big existential crisis for you as a Christian. That's going to lead you to all kinds of anxiety. God is the God of the lowly. Because, precisely because, we are saved by grace and not by works. Not just at your conversion, but every single day throughout your Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, uh, for what it means to us, uh, for who you are in it, for what you tell us about yourself in it, uh, for the truth, the kind of the very high-level things like the idea of Zion, and also... Um, maybe the more accessible things, like God being a God of the lowly, um, and everything in between. We, we thank you that we are saved in spite of ourselves. We are saved in spite of our misunderstanding. Uh, no one in this room, none of us, understand you. None of us understand the gospel perfectly, and yet we're still saved. That is crazy. That's so cool. That's such a mind-bender, though, too, at the same time. Grace is just amazing that we know and we don't, and yet it's, you, you still you keep your procession going into our life because it's you who die for us, you who come to save us from our brokenness and in our brokenness throughout this life, um, not waiting for us to get it together. And so we, um, we thank you, God, that we have not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. We have not come to the mountain of performance um, nor we have, have we come to the mountain of staying in covenant with you by our obedience, but instead we have come to the mountain of your obedience, as Hebrews 10 says, the obedience of the Son 
who came and gave his body up. He, he fulfilled his mission. He was the word that went into the world uh, to do what God wanted it to do, and it did not return to God void. You are the word, Jesus. You are the one. And uh, I pray that you would help us all to have life in that, to repent, to turn towards you, to have a God-facing heart, a new heart, and to rest and, and to receive. In Christ we pray. Amen.